Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are very glad that you are here for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We wish we had good news for you today, but it's all bad martinis. But we do have one good thing. We're brought to you today by Stamps.com. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. All you have to do is go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in three martini. Much more on that in just a moment. Jim, as mentioned, bad, bad, and bad martinis. Let's start in the great state of New York with very disturbing news and a governor who might soon have to answer for it. This first part comes from Time. Yes, Time magazine still exists, apparently. Uh, New York State is now reporting more than 1,700 previously undisclosed deaths at nursing homes and adult care facilities as the state faces scrutiny over how it's protected vulnerable residents during the coronavirus pandemic. At least 4,813 residents with confirmed or presumed cases of COVID-19 have died at 351 of New York's 613 nursing homes since March 1st, according to Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration. The list released late Monday includes the reported number of both confirmed and presumed deaths as of Sunday evening. It's a little bit weird, though, because they only count deaths if you actually die at the nursing home. If they send you from the nursing home to the hospital, it's a different count, so we don't have the exact totals. But here's where Cuomo comes in. New York Post. Former Governor George Pataki slammed Governor Andrew Cuomo's nursing home policies during the coronavirus pandemic as a disaster that may have unnecessarily caused the deaths of thousands of vulnerable elderly residents. In a rare swipe at his successor, Pataki called for an independent probe, quote, so this never happens again. Pataki said the state health department should have never issued an edict requiring nursing homes, requiring nursing homes to accept coronavirus patients into nursing home facilities filled with sick elderly patients, the population most at risk from the killer, COVID-19 bug. And Jim, we knew pretty early on that it was the sick and the elderly who were most at risk here. If Cuomo didn't know the policy, certainly somebody in his charge should have. What do you make of the fact that this is happening and the fact that it hasn't really been called to attention until now? Well, first of all, Greg, as you mentioned, the state's on, you know, uh, surprisingly complicated policy of calculating who counts as dying in a nursing home. And it depends upon whether you were in the nursing home not whether you were residing in a nursing home beforehand. I'm wondering about the ones who die somewhere in between, in transit from the nursing home. Does it calculate the mileage of how far you are from one and who gets credit for that? Uh, Look, yesterday we were talking about the uh, lawmakers who are being saluted and praised as some of the best of uh, uh, of handling this pandemic. And Andrew Cuomo would probably be at the top of the list for most Democrats and, and a whole bunch of folks in the mainstream media and if you know, you can love his briefings, but this seems like a really glaring issue. And any way you want to slice it, the buck has to stop with him. You can kind of understand the logic of this decision. They were really worried about hospital capacity up in New York City. They were among the places that were most overwhelmed and were having to transfer patients. Um, New York City at one point was purchasing hotel rooms, uh, basically telling hotels, we need to brook your space. And at least there, you're not coming encounter with lots of other people who are elderly or maybe having other, other health issues. The idea of we're going to expand our hospital capacity by taking people who we know have coronavirus and putting them back into uh, uh, nursing homes, 
like this really shouldn't have been that an unforeseeable you know bad move a whole bunch of people like wait a minute these people might be recovering but they're still potentially contagious and you're going to put them into buildings where everybody's enclosed where the air conditioning or, or heating system is going to distribute the virus throughout the air currents you know that's this is exactly where the virus wants to go if it wants to kill people right um and so you know this this so cuomo says oh i didn't know about this kind of stuff now during this part, you know, we done, started getting questions about this a couple of weeks ago. He kept emphasizing, well, it's not the state's job to provide the nursing homes with personal protective equipment. Um, they, I guess some nursing homes were allowed to opt out of this if they said they didn't have the staff to sufficiently take care of them. Surprise, surprise. Lots of people in nursing homes either have the, like the staff either has the coronavirus or they're afraid they've got the coronavirus. They want to stay home. They're waiting for test results. This was a really bad set of circumstances. But this state regulation appears to be of something that took a bad situation and made it much, much worse. Of course, this should be investigated. And I'd like for this narrative of Andrew Cuomo, hero of the pandemic, uh, to get some serious revision. Look, every, every governor is going to make mistakes in this process. Nobody's going to be handling this perfectly. But this seems like a really glaring one and a necessary, um, uh, it, it's necessary to check that narrative that is taking root right now before the facts can catch up and, you know, lead to a fuller and more honest discussion of Cuomo's performance in office. Yeah, I mean, step-down care should probably have been a priority here. I know that they had the field hospital at the Javits Center, uh, Franklin Graham's organization, Samaritan's Purse had one in Central Park, dedicating something like that or, or, or some other facility to folks who are getting better but can't rejoin the general population. Seems like a good idea if you've got that opportunity. But uh, you know, we always play the what if it was a Republican card. But uh, Jim, if this had been Ron DeSantis or... Greg Abbott oh, or anybody seven, else who's yeah. prominent, uh, you know what the response from the media would have been here. I was going to say the 1700 today, that's more than the death rate in Florida, isn't it? We've been whacking around Ron DeSantis like a pinata, or let's just say the media has been knocking him around. And he's had, you know, you, you can quibble with it. You can argue with his decisions. But the idea, look, there are a lot of people who want to believe blue states and blue governors and blue mayors are doing a good job and red states and red governors and red mayors are doing a bad job. And that's just not what the facts are, are, are showing. Nonetheless, people are going to stick to stick to this narrative because it makes them feel better. And they're going to basically say, ah, you know, oh, look at these silly uh, red state governors. And they're going to ignore stuff like this because it, you know, then it would mean maybe, oh, maybe, maybe Democrats don't have all the answers after all. It's almost like different states have different situations, but uh, <laughs> some people can't quite uh, distinguish. They're not merely administrative divisions of the federal government. All right. Well, let's talk about stamps.com. Uh, right now, we know that uh, getting out and standing in line is probably not everybody's favorite activity, although getting out of the house for a, for a walk is always nice. And stamps.com is here to help. You can avoid those crowds at the post office because anything you can do at the post office, you can do at stamps.com. Print postage on demand and skip those lines and the crowds. Plus, you can actually save money with discounts that you wouldn't even get by standing in line at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer in the safety and comfort of your own home, office, or anywhere else that you're hunkering down right now. So whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and you need to mail stuff, stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact required. Boy, did you ever think that would be a selling point? Anyway, it's just <laughs> that simple. And like I said, with stamps.com, you get great discounts too. 
five cents off of every first class stamp, up to 40% off of U.S. Postal Service shipping rates. And now, in addition to offering discounted U.S. Postal Service rates, Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounted rates up to 62%. Plus, with Stamps.com, you won't even have to pay UPS residential surcharges. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, especially now, saving you time and money and keeping you safe in these crazy times. Really is a no-brainer. And as we said earlier, our Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer now that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, all without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in three martini, all one word. That's stamps.com, enter three martini. Stay safe, my friends. All right, Jim, we've uh, kind of put 2020 on the back burner for obvious reasons here over the past several weeks uh, because of the coronavirus and all the different uh, elements that go along with it. But we still have an election at the end of this year, at least as of right now. Pretty sure there still will be. And in addition to the presidential race, we've got uh, control of the House, control of the Senate on the line. And control of the Senate is looking tougher and tougher. Uh, we already know that certain races are going to be very difficult. Uh, we know that Cory Gardner is probably uh, the underdog at this point against John Hickenlooper in Colorado. Susan Collins has a tough race in Maine. Uh, we know that Martha McSally uh, against uh, Gabby Gifford's husband, uh, Kelly, is going to have a, a tough race in Arizona. She's behind by all measures there, money and polling. And now we've got two other races that are not looking good. Let's start with the Montana State University poll showing that Democratic Governor Steve Bullock, you know, he ran for president for about 15 minutes, uh, leading Republican Senator Steve Daines by seven percentage points. Right now, 46% said they'd choose Bullock and 39% would support Steve Daines. It's a three and a half percent margin of error. And then so they say that means the race is too close to call. But Jim, when it's three and a half as a margin of error and a seven percent spread, it has to be a perfect storm for this to be uh, too close to call. But right now, it's the seven-point margin is not the big scary thing for me. It's the fact that the incumbent is only at 39% in Montana. And then in another poll, North Carolina, Tom Tillis, the Republican incumbent, at 41%. Not good. His Democratic opponent, Cal Cunningham, already at 50%. That's in a civics poll, C-I-V-I-Q-S poll. So obviously, long way to go. A lot can change. This year has been topsy-turvy, to say the least. And so none of these guys is uh, dead in the water or out of the race here. But uh, these are not good numbers for either of these sitting Republicans. Yeah, there are two thoughts that are, are worth keeping in mind here. The first is you can say, yes, this is May. This is not November. There's still a lot of road ahead. Um, the mood of the electorate is very much still very much in play and is going to be shaped by what happens throughout the summer and into the fall. That having been said, I'm not really shocked by these numbers for, for two factors. The first is, um, this. first of all, the, the Republican Party is the Trump party. So if Trump is not doing as well as he normally does in a particular state or in a particular or nationwide, the rest of the Republican Party is going to go uh, in pretty much the same directions. If Trump is not doing it as usual margins in these states, then you're going to see folks like Tom Tillis being in trouble and maybe Danes, maybe, you know, probably you're going to see Collins go down and Gardner. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of states that were already looking shaky. Montana was not one Republicans expected to be worrying about that much. And now it looks like they have good reason to worry. I can completely see why people think Trump deserves a re-election, particularly if they voted for him the first time. I can see why they see he's much more preferable than Biden. Um, or who look as, you know, as in an era of negative polarization and a Mr. Magoo-like Democratic nominee, uh, that you know, Trump still has a shot. No, I, I get all that. 
But I do think you got to look at things through the eyes of somebody who isn't that into politics, as perhaps the typical listener of this podcast is. And just how, how are Americans feeling right now? How are Americans looking? When they look out their window, <laughs> what are they seeing? Because for three years, the Trump argument was, look, even if you don't like everything he says, even if you don't like everything he tweets, the economy is running strong. And isn't that what really matters? And for three years, that was a really good argument that looked like it was going to be enough to keep Trump's uh, head above water and to keep him, you know, at least in the ballpark for re-election. Now we've got great depression-like conditions, and this is really, really tough. And so my fear, or at least what should be keeping the Trump campaign up nights, is the idea of this pincer, you know, movement, the idea that suburban soccer moms who already didn't like him and who decided by 2018 they couldn't stand him, they're going to vote for the Democrats. They're not coming back. Right? Maybe against Bernie Sanders, you'd have a shot. But unless the Democrats are openly, let's go full on socialism, it's, you're not going to get those folks back in the Republican column. And then the flip side is, okay, we can afford to lose those suburban voters because we're going to make up the margins amongst blue collar whites, and that's going to give us carry these states. Well, you know, those folks may not be as so enthusiastic if unemployment is 10 to 15% in the next couple of months. Is there time for the economy to turn around? Sure. But I don't know how, you know, I don't think you get back to pre-coronavirus by November. And so in a really lousy economy, uh, everything going on with the pandemic and Trump's, you know, usual habits of going onto Twitter and furiously raging about Joe Scarborough or, you know, the Russian scam. And, you know, he, there was an ad by, uh, you know, Lincoln Republicans, the, the Bill Crystal group, I believe it was. And, you know, they ran the ad and Trump, you know, you know, goes off and he does this rage and all that stuff. None of this is helping. None of this is looking like a president who is completely locked in on helping Americans get through this crisis. So I, I'm not surprised by this. Now, is there time to fix this? Sure. But uh, I think if you're a Republican, National Republican Senatorial Committee, you got to be really, really nervous about this. And if you're the N, uh, NRCC, you're probably not feeling that great about your chances of taking back the House either if Trump is you know, putting himself in the worst possible spot heading into re-election. Jim, this is fascinating, not only because we got Republicans who are in, in danger here, but uh, we've got circumstances that are very different than most years. And obviously, by the time October, November roll around, maybe people are paying a lot more attention to politics, maybe even almost as much as they do in a normal year. But if we're still in a situation where it's all coronavirus and all economy uh, in dire straits, how do you change the narrative if your numbers aren't good? I, I, from either side, if you're a Democrat trying to unseat a Republican, a Republican trying to unseat a Democrat, you're the challenger trying to get some oxygen, or you're an incumbent who's in trouble trying to change the story, uh, it's going to be hard to do, right? Yeah, I mean, probably the best sign for the Trump campaign in the last couple of months were the polling numbers of who do you see as a stronger leader. And despite all the frustration at Trump, which is well beyond the typical Democrats, people still saw Trump as a stronger leader than Joe Biden. And I suspect that's because the president is out there doing the White House briefings. And even when he's talking about disinfectants and going off on his crazy tangents and stuff, he still looks like the man in charge of the federal government's response because he is the man in charge of the federal government's response. And Joe Biden is a guy in his basement um, who's giving these kind of you know, odd and meandering answers. And you know, he, he looks, you know, Joe Biden has been largely irrelevant over the last couple of months. Now, there are certain advantages to that. It means that, you know, Biden makes a gaffe. It really doesn't, it doesn't get onto the front page. It doesn't really break through the noise of the coronavirus coverage. The Tara Reid stuff kind of broke through some. Um, but by and large, you know, Biden has been not quite invisible, but let's say much less visible. And it's working out for him. <laughs> if the election is a referendum on how do you think Trump has done, then Joe Biden probably feels pretty good about his chances. If the, if the election turns into, look, 
based on what you've seen so far, who do you trust to get through this? Trump at least has a shot, particularly if things look like they're in a better shape in November than they are uh, right now. But uh, that's, you know, still remains to be seen. And uh, it's, it's also worth noting at this point, it does depend on who the running mate choice is. I think that if uh, Biden panics and makes some sort of hard left choice because he's worried about losing the Bernie folks or uh, picks Gretchen Whitmer because he thinks she can carry Michigan or something like that, if he makes a bad choice on that with his age and his health conditions and the fact that we're going through a pandemic that is really dangerous to older men, um, then I think actually that could give everybody kind of a, a, a sudden, sudden lurch of, of, of uh, caution uh, towards embracing the Biden option. Jim, you've painted the picture of Joe Biden as Mr. Magoo in his basement, and it's an image that's not going to leave my mind anytime <laughs> soon. I guess, uh, you know, old school was the front porch campaign. This is, this is the basement campaign. It's, uh, <laughs> everything old is new again. Just a is it something like, you know, like growing mushrooms or something like that? <laughs> There's other ways you can take that metaphor, but anyway. All right, well, let's move on to our third bad martini. They're all bad today. Let's go to the Today Show. This is NBC's Today Show. Meat shortages at grocery stores and other food retailers across the nation have turned a famous 1980s catchphrase into an ominous question at some Wendy's locations around the country. Where's the beef? Some Wendy's restaurants have taken their signature hamburgers off the menu with shortages being reported at locations in California, South Carolina, and Kentucky on Monday as coronavirus outbreaks continue to disrupt the meat supply chain. The Wendy's burger shortage at some locations comes amid reports that about 5,000 meat and poultry plant workers contracted the novel coronavirus in 115 plants across 19 states. And so obviously production has been hit by that. And so Jim, anyone old enough to remember 1984 knows Clara Peller and the ladies looking at the giant bun with the tiny beef patty and her where's the beef campaign. So Wendy's is uh, getting a little bit of its uh, ad campaign back in its face 36 years later. But uh, as funny as that is, um, the fact that Wendy's in about a fifth of its locations can't even serve burgers right now uh, means that the meat shortages we talked about not too long ago are still an issue. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this probably, I'd realized time has no meaning. Um, and this is now the <laughs> 764th consecutive Wednesday in our lives. Um, but I, I wrote about this and there were a couple of people like, well, I'm not seeing food shortages in my area. Well, no. <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to see this everywhere all at once. You're not, you know, like, that's what happens when there are supply chain issues. The stuff that's in the chain gets to the end result, i.e. your local Wendy's and, and the food and, you know, into your, into your stomach and all that stuff, presumably only through drive through these days. But other places won't. And then eventually what happens is there's a stoppage and all of a sudden all that meat that used to come on Tuesday doesn't come on Tuesday. And it maybe doesn't come on Wednesday. Maybe it doesn't come on Thursday. So on Tuesday, they still got enough left over from Monday but by Wednesday, it's all out. And by Thursday, it's all out. And by Friday, they're still waiting for the, the shipment they were supposed to get on Tuesday. This is, you know, this is very real here. And I think out of all the things that have, I wrote about this in a, in a regular column for National Review today, Greg, the media has set itself up to argue about Trump. And it's done that really well with fairly high ratings and jumping circulation and web pages and all that kind of stuff. Um, pretty much for the last three years. It doesn't pay a lot of attention to places like Davenport, Iowa. It doesn't, I guess it was Waterloo, Iowa. It doesn't pay a lot of, place, a lot of attention to pork plants in North Carolina and South Dakota and places like that. And when you, you know, as a result of that, this came along. And when I had to do my article a couple of weeks ago, it was on trade publications. This was not something that the mainstream media was paying much attention to. 
when I went to do my article yesterday, Greg, I went to BuzzFeed just to see what their top story was. It was on how actress Vivica A. Fox is getting through the lockdown. <laughs> News you can use, America. You know, like at some point in the not too distant future, people are going to pull into their Wendy's and order a, was it Baconator is what they have? Not that I spend time in Wendy's. Sure. My wife is listening. Um, <laughs> you know, and they're like, wait, well, I'm sorry. We don't have any, sir. We, we, you know, we have the chicken sandwiches, but we don't have uh, the burgers. And people are going to be like, why? Like, what, what happened? Like, well, because there's been a beef shortage because the U.S. supply chain is getting disrupted because of the coronavirus. And people are like, well, how did this happen? Well, this. And the second thing, like, the response to this, I saw that uh, the president invoked the Defense Production Act to reopen some of the meatpacking plants. Well, okay, that's nice. But if the workers are sick, the workers are sick, right? I mean, like, you can't, you know, you're not going to be able to get people on those assembly lines if, there's, if they don't come into work and if they're staying at home. And oh, by the way, depending on how contagious they are, we may not want them on those assembly lines. I assume, you know, my understanding is that it's almost impossible to get uh, catch coronavirus from eating food. but for obvious reasons, we don't want those people. Uh, if, if you're sick with coronavirus, we don't want you at work. We don't want you spreading it to other people. And I, I for one, probably would prefer if you weren't handling the meat I'm going to eat later on. Um, but this is, you know, this is really big doings. And I feel like this is like, this issue, like if coronavirus is issue number one, I, I think this should be issue 1A, right? This is, Americans need to eat. Now, the good news is we're not going to starve. Right? We, we have a variety of food. We are one of the more self-sufficient uh, uh, countries in the world when it comes to food. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that we built a, built a really state-of-the-art system to get food to people based under normal circumstances. And that normal circumstance is, you know, this amount would be going every day to uh, people in grocery stores, and this amount would be going every day to people in restaurants. Well, all of a sudden, the restaurants are shut down. And as I discussed earlier, you've got these 10-pound bags of potatoes or in some cases, 50-pound bags of potatoes that are used to going to restaurants because they need to prepare lots and lots of potatoes all at once. And that, you know, your average mom and, you know, or, or, or dad, I guess, going to grocery shopping doesn't want to take 50-pound bags of potatoes home. Um, maybe you get them at Price Club or some of those big, you know, <laughs> bulk discount stores. But by and large, you know, the stuff that you're creating for this, people, as one person put it, you're not going to need a 12-pound bag of, che of shredded cheese. Uh, that's what the pizzerias need, you know, that kind of that scale. So we, on a, they can't just turn it on a dime to start making stuff for the supermarket uh, customers instead of for the restaurant customers. This, by the way, Greg, have I mentioned the toilet paper aspect of this? <laughs> I think it was from a, a Michael Brendan Doherty column, and it really kind of illuminates why we ended up with the giant to toilet paper shortage and why this turned into one of the weirdest things in, the, um, in this you know, coronavirus outbreak from the beginning. So let's face it, on any given day, Americans get up, they go to, a lot of us go to work, a lot of us go to school. And we go and we go about our day and we do our business. We do our business in the bathrooms and, you know, some people are, you know, people are using toilet paper there. All of a sudden the lockdown goes into place. All of a sudden the quarantine, all of a sudden everyone's working from home. All of a sudden schools are closed. Everybody's at home. So instead of using your bathroom, let's say two times a day or three times a day, you're using the bathroom all day long because you're not at work anymore. Well, whatever rate of usage you have for your toilet paper, all of a sudden, it's go you're going through it a lot faster because all of your bathroom breaks are at home instead of being at school. Now take this and apply this across the entire country. So what happens is we had a whole bunch of toilet paper that is still sitting there in America's workplaces and schools, in those supply closets, in those uh, buildings, you know, facilities management rooms and all that kind of stuff that are used to being replaced at night as the janitorial staff comes through. 
But it's not there now because no one's in their workplaces and nobody's in their schools. So that's why all of a sudden everyone is like, oh, wait, I'm going through toilet paper a lot faster. I'd better go out and get some. And then, of course, once people hear there's a shortage, then it turns into, well, I better get my toilet paper before everybody else does. And that's how we ended up with the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. That is fascinating. And, and I didn't have to use the word poop in any of this. Well, until then, yeah. Until now. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, just going back to where's the beef. Uh, for those too young to remember the ad campaign, since it was 36 years ago now, it's hard to really explain how popular that was. In fact, it got so popular that it was in the middle of the Democratic primary, and Walter Mondale, the eventual nominee, was going head-to-head -head with Gary Hart. Uh, those were the, the big two. And Jesse Jackson was kind of the third wheel there. And, uh, and so at one point, Gary Hart wins the New Hampshire primary. So Mondale's got to go on offense. And he decided that Gary Hart's uh, plans were not very detailed. And so he went out there and his catchphrase was, my only question for him is, where's the beef? And so uh, that became so popular that it actually got injected into a presidential campaign. But as clever as that Wendy's ad campaign was, my favorite one, was I think from about the same time, maybe a little bit later in the 80s, where they were talking about the importance of having choices on your burgers, and they did this Russian uh, beauty pageant. And so they had Dever, and this woman walks out in this drab gray house dress and the little handkerchief on her head there. And then they'd go to Evening there, same thing, only with a flashlight. And then it was a uh, uh, swimsuit, and then it was just uh, same dress, and she was holding a beach ball. And so the whole thing was uh, not only uh, a good way to point out that it was easier to get choices at Wendy's, but uh, the fact that they were jabbing at the Soviet Union, because, you know, back in the 80s, it was okay for corporate America to poke their finger at the commies and get away with it. It was a nice time. Yeah, it was before somebody said, hey, there's a communist country. Let's move all of our production there and see what happens. <laughs> Where's the production lines? Yeah, so. yeah, young people, now you know why we love the 80s so much. There's a lot more than that from the 80s to love, but uh, that's a big part of it. Just like Rocky Ford, it's okay to take a shot at a commie. It was fine. Listeners, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Also, don't forget our great sponsors at stamps.com. Right now, stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in three martini. And join us on Wednesday for the next three martini lunch.